Welcome back to the Parbar Podcast. Today, we are looking at a portion of Genesis 15 as we continue our work through the book of Genesis. If you'd like to pause the podcast and go read the chapter, I have a link in the description below. Now here in Genesis 15, God makes promises to Abram. And as God points back to Abram's past, he reminds Abram of the land. God also points to the future hope, where God has Abram look forward and upward to the heavens. This is, of course, a picture of Abram, Abraham, if you will, being the mediator between heaven and earth for the people of God. Abram is the father of the faithful, of both the Jew and the Gentile. And of course, through Abram comes the promised seed to save. Uh, the con- concepts in chapter 15 connect back with chapter 14, all the way back to Genesis 1, actually. Uh, but immediately with chapter 14, uh, we read, After these things, what what follows in Genesis 15 comes from Abram kicking butt of all the kings in Genesis 14. And of course, we read something interesting. Abram is afraid. Abram is terrified. Um, so in verses 1 to 7, I'll get to why he's afraid in just a minute. Uh, in verses 1 to 7, God gives Abram his word of promise, and then God gives him his sign or his seal of oath in verses 9 to 17. Now, God makes a promise and he seals it with an oath upon himself, because as Hebrews 6 tells us, there is no one and nothing greater to take an oath upon. We often find in the Bible that God gives his word followed by a sign. God gives his word to Adam to be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, gives him the threat of death for disobedience, and then God gives him a sign of those promises. Two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives his word never to flood the world again, and he gives us a sign, a rainbow in the sky. God promises to make the Hebrews into nation, and the nation, of course, has laws, and he gives them the two tables of the law on Mount Sinai. God promises to give them the land of Canaan. He has, of course, Joshua place memorial stones at the Jordan River. Uh, God gives us his word every Sunday, and then he gives us the bread and the wine of the covenant. He gives us word and sign. His word of promise is sealed to us every Lord's day with his oath at the Lord's table, that the body and the blood of Jesus are ours. But we see the same pattern here, a word and a sign. God makes a promise to Abram about the future, and he seals it with an oath, the torch and oven passing through the cut-up animals. Now, what is God promising to Abram here? I think he's promising to recreate the world and to give it to Abram's seed. I mentioned that what happens here is directly connected to Genesis 14, but it's also a throwback to Genesis 1 and the creation of the world with the earth and the heavens. Remember, previously God has promised Abram the whole land, north, south, east, and west, and then there was this big war in the land with all the kings, and Chedorlaomer gains dominion over all the land. And Lot and his family, of course, are taken uh, when the city of Sodom is overwhelmed, and Abram and his 318 homeborn servants who are trained for fighting head on out to rescue Lot and the others. Abram then whips Chedorlaomer, and he liberates all the people, and now... Abram has victory in the land, but of course, he is afraid of retaliation. 
I think that's why this chapter begins with Abram afraid. Abram, in principle, is the victor of the land of Canaan. But of course, Abram cannot secure the land of Canaan with only 318 fighting men. What if Chedorlaomer regroups and six months or a year later or next spring, he comes looking for payback against Abram? So Abram is afraid. Abram comes back with the spoils of battle and he gives it all away. Uh, perhaps Abram did not want to be caught with Chedorlaomer's goods. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15, we read something quite interesting. We read that the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. And just thinking about that, how, how does that happen? How does the word of Yahweh come to Abram in a vision? Uh, well, of course, we have the fullness of revelation available to us. We have the whole Bible. And considering what the Bible says about Jesus, particularly in John chapter 1, I would suggest that the word here that comes to visit Abram is, of course, the second person of the Holy Trinity. This would be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This vision that Abram receives goes all the way through the chapter, which uh, I won't get into the whole thing because I'd like to keep these episodes short. <laughs> um, but there's some interesting details going on. Now, you remember when someone gets caught up in a vision in the Bible, it means uh, that they are placed within the heavenly realm that's normally invisible to us, or they get to see it, see behind the veil, so to speak, of what's going on in the background of the world stage. Remember, Isaiah is caught up in a vision. He sees the temple, which is, if we live then, we would see the temple built of stones and its glory and its beauty. Uh, but Isaiah is caught in a vision, and he sees the temple, and he sees above the temple, where Yahweh is high and lifted up on his throne, and his royal robe fills the temple beneath his feet. To our earthly eyes, we would see the stone temple that Solomon built, but Isaiah is caught in a vision, and he sees, of course, the beautiful stone temple, but he sees the reality behind the reality. The temple is where God dwells, and he gets to see it. Uh, these visions are things that usually happen to the prophets, uh, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. Um, we read, for example, in Amos 3, that the prophets are those who are invited into the heavenly council of God. They, they're the ones who get to see God's plan in action, and prophets are the ones who get to give their input to God. So in Amos 3.7, God says, Surely the Lord Yahweh does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So the, the prophets are sort of in the inner circle. They get to receive the revelation and the plan of God, and they get to give their input. Just in a little while in the book of Genesis, God will call Abraham his prophet. And we see, of course, God interact with Abraham by inviting to give him counsel in Genesis 18. Uh, this is right before the two, two angels go down to Sodom as two witnesses against the city's wickedness. And God asks, uh, Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham? what I am doing. And of course, you know the exchange. He says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham says, what if there are 50 righteous there? What if there are 40 righteous there? All the way down to 10. Abram gets to give God his counsel. And this prophet-type vision thing seems to be what's going on here with Abram. Abram hears God's words, and then Abram, as a prophet, gets to ask questions about it. 
because he's part of God's heavenly council. The same is true for us today because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're all considered prophets in this sense. We enter into God's presence on the Lord's day. We are elevated into the heavenly places, into the most holy place where we hear his word and we give him our counsel. You know, we look around the corner and we see Planned Parenthood is still there. And we say, Lord, your word tells us that you hate hands that shed innocent blood and that the wicked will not stand. And just look over there. There they are shedding innocent blood and standing. We ask you to bring them down. Or, Lord, you say that you are our shield and defender. And we admit we're a bit frightened by the future and ask that you would protect us even now. Or, Lord, you say by the stripes of the Son of Man, you would heal all of our diseases. And some of us are sick, and we need you to heal us. Now, this is an amazing thing, of course, that God himself is a holy council. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all in council together. God certainly does not need our advice or our input or our questions. And yet God, in his steadfast love, permits us to interject, to ask questions, and to seek a reinforcement for our faith. And just as God does not chastise Abram for this, he doesn't chastise us for this either, but he welcomes us to do it. So keep praying. Well, the promise that God gives to Abram here has to do with the seed and with the land. And so the question is, who is the promised seed and who will inherit the land? And in the context of Genesis, at this point, Abram might be thinking, is it Lot, my nephew? Um, he's part of our seed line. He's connected to me. He's related to me. Um, or will it be my homeborn slave, Eleazar, who will inherit everything since I don't have any children? And of course, Lot seems to disqualify himself um, as he removes himself from the covenant, perhaps, and moves to Sodom. And God, of course, says no to Eleazar because Abram will have a son of his own. And as the story progresses, the question is, well, is Ishmael the son who will inherit these blessings? And we know the question to that. Uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the answer to that, which is no, but we'll get to that later on. And then this is where the vision gets weird. In verse 5, we read that God takes Abram outside. <laughs> They're in a vi Abram's in a vision, whatever that would look like. And now they go outside in the vision. Uh, where? What? I don't know how the logistics of this works, but uh, it reminds me of John in the book of Revelation, who's always scooting around from place to place in the visions he receives as well. But God says to Abram, come outside and count the stars. And the word for count or to number can also mean to evaluate. Look up to the heavens and uh, what's your judgment of the stars? What do you see? Come outside and evaluate the heavenly luminaries. And God says your seed will be like them. And of course the word seed here is singular. It's not plural. It's not your seeds, but your seed. And Paul makes a big deal about this in Genesis 3, 15 to 18, in showing how it applies directly to Jesus. But there are three common interpretations to the promise from God to Abram. And I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think they can all be right. But just briefly, here are three common interpretations of what God is conveying to Abraham, Abram. The first is, that the counting of the stars in, is in reference to the vast multitude of Abram's seed. This is the most common interpretation. Perhaps if you have a study Bible, this is the one in the footnote. Those who come from the singular seed, Jesus Christ, the morning star himself, will be stars as well. 
Now, Paul makes this very connection in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Paul says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as stars in the world. If your translation says lights, um, it's missing the point. This Greek word is actually the word for stars. Jesus is the star, and like him, we who are Abraham's seed according to faith, the seed of Abraham, are stars as well. Paul says as much in Philippians 2. And there are going to be vast multitudes of us. Now, a second interpretation flows from the word to evaluate the stars. Remember that God put the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens to teach man. We read this in Genesis 1, verses 14 to 15. The, the luminaries are in the heavens to guide and to teach us. They are signs. People in the ancient world would have their year guided by the constellations and the phases of the moon. You know, the constellations move through the sky and they mark the passage of the seasons, just like if anybody pays attention to them now today in astronomy. Um, there's the lion, the virgin, the archer, the water bearer, and so on. And you can notice, oh, look, the Libra is on the horizon, which means winter's coming soon, or whatever it was back then. Uh, you can even now get those apps on your phone that chart the constellations for you. You hold your phone up to the night sky, and it shows you all of them that can be found above us in our hemisphere. And if you ever notice, the stars up there don't look like what they're named. Most of us here in at least North America know the Big Dipper, but the Big Dipper is actually part of a larger constellation, Ursa Major, which means the Big Bear. And if you look up tonight and you find the Big Dipper, which is easy enough to spot, but none of us would be able to see the Big Bear or Cygnus the Swan. Can you find Cygnus the Swan in the sky this, tonight? We know Orion's belt. That one's clear enough. Three stars across and a sword down his side. But can you chart out the rest of Orion? Do you know where the Pleiades are? The seven sisters. Can you find them? Um, in some ways, today, you have to be taught them. And of course, people in the ancient world would have known them. This is how they would have kept a calendar and kept the seasons and kept the times for festivals. Israel is, uh, and uh, because this is why God gave them, as a means to tell time. So God put these pictures in the sky so that people would know things about the movements of the earth. They governed the times and the seasons. And then, of course, there are the 12 major constellations, which match up with the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is the apple of God's eye, the center of the world, the place where God dwelt on earth. And this nation was to lead all the nations in the worship of God. The Old Covenant is, of course, the covenant of the moon. All of their, all of their festivals and celebrations were governed by the phases of the moon. They are the, covenant, uh, the Old Covenant is the covenant of the nighttime, in which the world was led by the moon and the stars. The scriptures talk about the constellations. Um, quite often, for example, in the book of Job. But we also see in the book of Genesis, when Joseph has his dreams, that the sun and moon and stars all bow down to him. And these represent father, mother, and his brothers. And a very common interpretation in church history is that the brothers are represented not as an individual star bowing to him, but the constellations bowing to Joseph. There's Leo, the lion, bowing to, to Joseph. There's Aquarius, the water bearer, bowing to Joseph. There's 
Taurus the bull, bowing to Joseph. And uh, there's some archaeological evidence that supports this in ancient synagogues. Um, so astronomy is okay for Christians. That's good and fine. Study the stars and the heavens. Uh, but remember, astrology is wicked. Don't, don't go down that route. So Abram goes outside and he looks up at the constellations and he's to evaluate them. And God says, look at the stars, the constellations, and these will tell you things about your seed who is to come. Your seed, Abram, will be like Leo. He will be lion-like. Your seed will be like Aquarius, the one who brings living waters to people. Your seed will be like Taurus, the sacrificial bull. Your seed will be like Libra, the scales of judgment, the judge of heaven and earth. Your seed will do all of these things. The stars of heaven, in other words, reveal something to us about Jesus Christ, the seed of Abram. He comes outside in a vision. He's told to evaluate the signs in the heavens. And what they mean is what his seed will be like. Now, a third interpretation is that Abram's seed will be a reflection of the heavenly host. This new earthly host that is made up of Abram and the faithful will be a reflection on earth of the hosts in heaven, the angelic hosts and we would say today, our dear departed fathers and mothers. The entirely heaven, entire heavenly host from our perspective, of course, so if you look up at the sky, uh, all the luminaries of the heavens revolve around the sun. In like manner, God's earthly host, his people on earth, are structured around the tabernacle where God's glory cloud resides. So the, the stars and the moon revolve around the sun, and on earth, the 12 tribes of Israel live and move and revolve around the temple where God dwells. So in this analogy, God is the sun. The tabernacle and temple where God's glory cloud resides is surrounded by the he earthly heavenly hosts of Israel. Abram goes out and he knows that the covenant people on earth are to reflect the heavenly host around the throne of God in heaven. So Abram knows that his seed would be like the heavenly host arranged around God's throne on earth. Abram evaluates the stars, and he understands that there will be a new humanity that will come from his loins that will be gathered around God's throne. So those are the three primary interpretations of God's promise to Abram here about the stars and the heavens. And again, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, but I think that they're all right all part of what God is conveying here. That the seed of Abram, those who have the faith of Abraham, will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Uh, that the seed of Abraham singular, Jesus Christ, will be a fullness and an encapsulation of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And that God is creating for himself on earth a heavenly host to worship him and to lead the nations to worship him. So thank you for listening to the Power Bar podcast, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.